0: Good morning, church. I'm so excited to be here with you. My name is Brian. I'm one of the pastors here on staff. And I'm really excited to continue on in this series that we've been in, the book of Daniel. Are you excited? All right. You're live. You're present. Awesome. Welcome online too. Uh, Justin did an awesome job last week just to catch you up to where we've been. We've, uh, we're going straight through. So if you if you feel lost, just go back and read chapters 1, 2, and 3. You can also find those online on our website, the, the past sermons. But Justin did an awesome job last week reading through and, and kind of contemplating through one of my favorite stories in Scripture, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And I love that story because of its miraculous nature. But I also love it because uh, God showed that He is with us no matter what. Amen? And He gave us a question to consider this last week and this weekend. Hopefully you had time to ponder this, and that question was really simple. It was, what will you do if your faith is tested? What would you do if your faith was tested? Hopefully not in such a way that your life is on the line, but we've all faced these tests before. And what will you do if your faith is tested? And he leaned into this idea that it it depends a lot upon how we develop our character before those moments. And so we're gonna continue this examination of how we develop our character in a specific way. We're gonna talk about pride this morning. But before we do that, uh, have you you guys been enjoying the weather? Yes? I knew there was gonna be a mixed response because it's like sunny, but it's crazy hot out there, isn't it? Oh man. Well, uh, my family and I had the privilege of going camping this weekend. We had a great time. Uh, We went over to East Lake, one of my favorite places in Central Oregon to go camping. And I learned a few things on this trip, uh, some of which I already knew. First, we went camping with a one and a half and a four year old. So, you know, there's that where it's like, there's some some extra planning and there's definitely some like, give it to God factor. You know, I I would be lying if I said that the nights were smooth, they were pretty rough. but it was fun. We had some moments of joy and some sadness. It was a, it was a full gamut. It was awesome. <laughs> uh, but my, my reflection on the trip really hones in on my, my little boy. He's one and a half years old. And we, we brought a canoe, and we decided to canoe across the lake to what we thought was gonna be a white sand beach. And we pull up on the beach, and suddenly I realize uh, we're in Central Oregon, so white sand is probably not something that is uh, in a plethora. And it was actually white pumice stone. Cool. No big deal. Take care of my calluses. Walk down the shoreline. (laughs) Oh, man. But we had a great time until Walker got hungry, and he was sitting in the sand, and he was munching on something. And I I look at Lisa, and we didn't give him a snack. Well, Walker had decided that pumice stone is much like a a potato chip. So he was throwing pumice stones into his mouth and (laughs) and just chewing on these things. And I'm thinking, oh my goodness, like, one, that is absolutely disgusting, man. Like, what are you doing? I should have known better because he puts everything in his mouth. Uh, But two, like, the, the dentist bills, like... I'm sure Carlo Rodondo is like grimacing right now. That's horrible. And it took us 45 minutes to go across the lake. So I'm like, dude, if you choke right now, you're done. Like we're just, it's over for you. (laughs) So anyway, we have this moment and then we go back to the campsite. And uh, again, I should have known, but he was on the ground playing and oh, that's great. You know, you're not destroying something. This is a win right now, you're having fun. But then I look over and it's like the dirt is multiplying on his face, (laughs) specifically around his mouth region. And I'm like, Lisa, he's just eating dirt. Like, we need to feed this kid. What's going on, right? Oh, man, it's so disgusting. Anyway, and then the last the last thing that I remember about the trip, we were driving home, and Lisa and I were talking, and you don't realize how filthy you are until you're, like, out of the campsite. And you lie to yourself while you're there because everybody else camping is like, oh, yeah, this is great. You, know, we, you don't smell if everybody else does. And I look at my hands. Probably not the safest thing to do while you're driving, but I look at my hands, and I have these, like, crevices in my hands, like these lines, and they were just full of dirt. So I get home, I'm trying to scrub this dirt out, and it's just like embedded in my skin. It's crazy, I can still see dirt on my hands, and it's been over 24 hours, it's ridiculous. So a great camping trip, right? I love, I don't know why we love camping, what we do, right? You're sitting there and you're like, this was so much work, but it was so worth it. It's just, ah, just being in nature, feels good. But my reflection on this trip is that, man, it's dirty. And the reason I'm bringing this story up and and the connection I wanna make this morning is that the, the, the characteristic or the personality trait, the sin that so easily creeps into who we are and how we operate in our life is a lot like that dirt in my hands. And that sin that we're talking about this morning is pride. Man, pride is an ugly, ugly, dirty word. It's so destructive. But more than that, it can be really confusing. It's multifaceted, it's multi it has multiple definitions. And for the sake of this morning, I'd love to offer up two definitions to you. The first has a positive spin, and it actually is a positive thing. Uh, it's, it's this, pride is a reasonable and justifiable self-respect. The key word there is respect. And you've experienced this before. Maybe you've been proud of your kids. Maybe you've been proud of your spouse. Maybe you've been proud of some work that you accomplished or a school that you graduated from. There's positive pride when you have self-respect. And the key is perspective. It's how that pride resides within you and how you prioritize uh, where you fit within that accomplishment. Now, the second definition is the one that we're gonna lean into a little bit more this morning, and it has a negative connotation. And it's it's what's... Uh, Exemplified in the character that we're going to examine in the book of Daniel this morning. And that definition is this, pride is an improper and excessive self-esteem. This is probably the one that you think of when you think of like classic pride. It's a slow and powerful toxin to your life and it can go unnoticed for years, maybe even a lifetime, but it's continually working its poison into your life, into your relationships, unfortunately, into your relationship with your God. In essence, it can become a block to the full life that God desires for you, the full life that is described by Jesus in John 10.10. Ultimately, it keeps us from God and keeps us from living within his will. So I don't know what your experience with pride is. Maybe you've had a moment where you yourself were prideful. You know, you said something that you almost instantly regret in a prideful moment, and you're left with remorse and regret because you've hurt somebody's feelings or uh, you've misrepresented yourself. Maybe uh, you had a moment where you needed to apologize for something that you did. This is like classic me. Like, I need to apologize, but I'm right. I shouldn't have to apologize. But if you let that simmer for long enough and you let the Lord uh, convict you of that, it's so much worse if you wait. And it can be so bad that sometimes you sever relationships because you're proud and you think that you're right. Like I said before, maybe your experience with pride is that you've received prideful actions or words. You haven't been the prideful one, but you've been on the, the receiving end of that negative personality trait. No matter what your experience, pride can be extremely painful. And as I said before, it can be extremely deadly. So as I was studying this chapter, uh, I was reading through commentator notes, I was doing a a lot of research, and I came across something really interesting that I wasn't expecting to illustrate this morning, but I came across a poem. Any poem lovers out there? Lover of prose? Really? Okay, well, we'll see if you like this or not. If you don't, you can write me a note. (laughs) But this poet's really interesting. His name is Percy Shelley. He's from the early 1800s. And he wrote this poem, I'll give you a little teaser just so you understand what's happening once uh, we play it. But basically he's writing this, uh, this interesting account of a monument fallen to a great leader of past. And we see in this, uh, this dramatic portrayal of this poem that in the moment of human greatness. It might seem ominous and powerful, but humans are humans. So let's, let's listen to this real quick. side remains. Round the decay of that colossal wreck, boundless and bare, alone and level sands stretch far away. Whew! I got chills. <laughs> then again, anything that's read by Brian Cranston is going to give you chills. Could you imagine if he was on our teaching staff? Whew! He could, he could be making an announcement about, like, bathrooms, and it'd be awesome, right? We'd get so excited. <laughs> But I love this poem, Uh, I love the artistry, of course, but the thing that I love about it is, and the way that they recorded it specifically, is that you hear the, the almost ominous presence of this man of old saying, I am great, I am mighty, in view of me, despair, and then nothing. It's a great illustration of the fact that we are timed any man or woman that's walked the face of this this earth, no matter how great their accomplishment, time and circumstance will snuff them out. And I, I laugh when I hear that, even though it's like this powerful moment, because that is exactly what happened to King Nebuchadnezzar, this great leader of a great nation that conquered the world. And yet, Brian Chappelle, a commentator, notes, Babylon's king forgot that time and circumstance erode all human accomplishment, making pride absurd. I love it. So I think we can all agree that pride is absurd. Pride does destroy, and pride has no place in our walk with the Lord. Amen? Amen. But here's the reality for most of us. Like I said, this is a confusing topic We live in this dichotomy of pride because growing up, I don't know about you, but growing up, I was always told independence and self-reliance are things of success and strength. And we see this in great figures of our history, right? Even recent history, these self-made men and women that do great things. And there's nothing wrong with being self-reliant. There's nothing wrong with being independent. But like I said before, it's all about the perspective and how you involve God in that and how you glorify either God for yourself. God wants to give you greatness, not for you, but to portray how great he is. So that's the pride and the dichotomy that we're going to be diving into today. You know, you've heard it said many times and this is actually written in scripture in Proverbs 16:18. Pride comes before the fall. Yes, we got it. It literally reads pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before stumbling. So I can't emphasize enough that pride is so dangerous because there's such a small difference between living our life and using our gifts for God's glory or spinning that around and trying to glorify ourselves. But one thing is for certain, life constantly provides moments to either glorify God or glorify ourselves. Which are you gonna choose? Whatever your experience is with pride, we're we're gonna cover some universal truths this morning, but before we do, I'd love to pray before we read God's word. Lord, thank you for this morning. We thank you that you give us direction, you give us freedom, you give us the ability to think and choose, and Lord, you give us the ability to screw up our lives too. And so as we look into your word and we look at this example of how you love and conquer and overcome and uh, take care of us, Lord, would you help us be inspired Would you speak to us and change the way that we view our world and change our hearts? I pray these things in your name, amen. All right, so this first universal truth about pride that we're gonna cover is that pride will ultimately destroy your life. We're gonna jump into the passage here, Daniel 4, verse one. It says this, Nebuchadnezzar, the king to all the people's nations and populations of all languages who live in all the earth, may your peace be. Be great. Okay. So we have this broad broadcast of this is a message for everyone. And this is a powerful message because of the person that is bringing it. At this time, this man was powerful. And so people listened because sometimes their life depended upon it. And this is what he chooses to say. Verse 2 I am pleased to declare the signs and miracles that the most high God has done for me. How great are his signs and how mighty are his miracles. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and his dominion is from generation to generation. Awesome. This huge power is deciding to use his voice to, pro- to proclaim the greatness of God. But what's interesting is that this letter is backwards. He's, going, he's saying he is great, he is awesome, he is high, but let me tell you why. So we're gonna jump into that in a second. But if you're anything like me, you're thinking back and you're thinking, well, haven't haven't we heard this before? Hasn't he said this before? And the answer is yes. In verse, or excuse me, in chapter two, we see that after Daniel uh, interprets the dream, not only interprets, but tells him his dream because of the Lord uh, within him, he says, God of gods and Lord of lords, Lord of kings. And in chapter three, kind of the same thing. After these men are saved out of the furnace, he says, praise be to God. So you might be thinking, man, Nebuchadnezzar is dense. What is with this guy? Why is he so forgetful? Why is he not actually changing his life? Well, you know what's funny? We can be quick to throw accusations and to judge, but aren't we the same way? I'm I'm speaking from personal experience here. I can have a moment where God humbles me, shows me his power, and literally the next hour, I'm choosing to go upon my own strength, my own knowledge, or do something that I know is contrary to what he wants me to do, but I do it anyway. It's called being human. So, Nebuchadnezzar is human, (laughs) and we see that he's about to uh, enter into an incredible experience. So, verse 4 through 9 describes this dream. I'm gonna uh, put it into a synopsis for us. In verse four, he says, "'I was at ease in my house and prospering in my palace.'" So this picture up here is a rendering of uh, what the the Babylonian palace would have looked like. It's beautiful, it's got those hanging gardens that are so uh, famous. And it's kind of a place of peace and reflection. And I wanted to point this out because oftentimes this is where pride is lurking. We'll see later that pride comes upon him when he's walking on his roof. It's easy to overlook our life and say, wow, look at, look at everything, look at all of this, while you're being kind of lazy, all right? Verse five continues, it says, I saw a dream that made me afraid. He saw a dream that made him afraid, and we'll see why in a moment. Ultimately, it's a description of either his enemies or his demise. That would make me nervous. And I wanted to point out that he's nervous because it's, it's threatening his security, which is another place in our life where we tend to be, to, to be tempted by pride. We try to store up things in order to control the outcome of our circumstances in the future. And you know what? There's nothing wrong with planning. But again, are we involving the Lord? And are we in a heart position where we're saying, you know what, if the Lord took everything from me in this moment, would I be okay? Would I still be worshiping the Lord or would my world crumble? Continues on, 6 through 7, he makes a decree for all of his wise men to come to him. Again, remember what happened when he called his wise men last time? He got so angry that they couldn't do what he wanted them to do. He almost killed them all, and yet he's still calling on them first. Finally, we see that he brings Daniel into the picture. Good job, Nebuchadnezzar. (laughs) And then this story continues, verse 10 through 18, and we will read this dream because it's incredible. Here we go. Verse 10, now these were the visions in my head. This is Nebuchadnezzar speaking. These were the visions in my mind as I lay on my bed. I was looking and behold, there was a tree in the midst of the earth and its height was great. The tree grew large and became strong and its height reached to the sky and it was visible to the end of the whole earth. Its foliage was beautiful and its fruit abundant and in it was food for all. The beasts of the field found shade under it and the birds of the sky dwelt in its branches and all living creatures fed themselves from it. I was looking in the visions in my mind as I lay on my bed and behold an angelic watcher, a holy one descended from heaven. He shouted out and spoke as follows, chop down the tree and cut off its branches, strip off its foliage and scatter its fruit. Let the beasts flee from under it and the birds from its branches. Yet leave the stump with its roots in the ground, but with a band of iron and bronze around it in the new grass of the field, and let him be drenched with the dew of heaven, and let him share with the beasts in the grass of the earth. Let his mind be changed from that of a man, and let a beast's mind be given to him, and let seven periods of time pass over him. This sentence is by the decree of the angelic watchers, and the decision is a command of the holy ones in order that the living may know that the Most High is ruler over the realm of mankind, and bestows it on whom he wishes, and sets over it the lowliest of men." Okay, I can see why he, can you see why he's a little bit concerned? This isn't just like your, you know, your standard, like, spider nightmare. (laughs) This is scary stuff. This is like ominous, like, life stuff. And in this dream, we see an image right off the bat. We see this giant tree. We see this giant tree. Now this tree, this photo of this tree is uh, a typical site in the Mesopotamian area where where Babylon uh, was. It's a a large cypress tree, beautiful, full branches. And it's interesting when you think through the lens, I'm giving you teasers here so you understand and, and we can be focused. He's thinking about and pondering and dreaming about who he is. He thinks very highly of himself. So look at the description of this tree. The leaves are beautiful, (laughs) fruit abundant, and food for all. The beasts find shade in it. Birds live in its branches. And I thought that this phrase was really interesting. All flesh are fed from it. So typically, uh, a tree is often used in Scripture and also in uh, Mesopotamian historical literature to denote greatness, specifically like divine greatness, so almost like a god or a a cosmic being. And Nebuchadnezzar, he doesn't know it yet, but uh, yeah, that's him. He thinks that he is great, and he, he, he has greatness. He has sovereignty. But then after this, we see the scary part. We see that this uh, this this figure comes down, a watcher, a holy one, and it has a decree. And and that decree was to chop this tree down. Lob off its branch, not just chop it down, but lob off the branches. Strip the leaves off, scatter the fruit, the beasts will flee, the, the birds will flee. But to leave the roots and the stump, which will be interesting for us later. Then we see this tree personify into a he. And it says, uh, he will be wet with the dew of heaven. He will eat grass. His mind will be changed to that of a beast for seven periods, which most of the time, a period in scripture uh, denotes kind of a year. So seven year period. This is intense. I can see why he he wanted this to be interpreted. He definitely didn't want this to be on him. But I want to read verse 17 one more time because of the end of the the verse, and it it speaks directly uh, to our topic at hand, to pride. It says, This sentence is by the decree of the angelic watchers, and the decision is a command of the holy ones, in order that the living may know that the Most High is ruler over the realm of mankind, and bestows it on whom he wishes, and sets over it the lowliest of men. It's interesting that it's emphasized the, the lowliest of men because Nebuchadnezzar was the highest of men. So he's, he's probably already sensing that, uh-oh, okay, there's something going on here. All right, so let's look at the interpretation. Verse 19 through 27, Daniel comes into the picture, and it's remarkable how Daniel comes into this circumstance, in particular, his heart position. So Nebuchadnezzar, this ruthless king, the king that demolished Daniel's homeland, took his, uh, his friends into exile, and then, uh, I don't know, tried to live cremate them, which was a failure, by the way. Daniel doesn't come at him with bitterness. He doesn't even come to him with fear. He comes to him with empathy. We see in the scripture that it says that Daniel was dismayed. It's a remarkable relationship that Daniel has with this man. It's almost as though he can separate this man from his political prowess as a child of God. And he has empathy on him. I just thought that that was worth saying. And he responds by saying, may the dream be for those who hate you and its interpretation for your enemies. Translation, I wouldn't wish this on your worst enemy, empathy. But in the following verses, again, 19 through 27, uh, Daniel's interpretation reveals a few things. One, this decree is coming from the Most High, the sovereign God. God. And the tree is Nebuchadnezzar. And he is going to experience judgment from the Holy One if he doesn't turn from his prideful ways. So here's the deal. If you've had a dream about you being a tree, this would be the time to start freaking out. (laughs) <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> but this cosmic, tree, this, this cosmic tree, this divine order, God, perfect man, uh, this, he now understands that this is him. And it makes sense because he thinks he's larger than life. He thinks that he is beautiful and respectable. He thinks that he's providing for his kingdom. Much like the, the eerie section of the poem, Ozymandias, that we heard, you could feel the weight of his words. I truly believe that he had instilled fear in his people because he literally had control over whether they would live or die. He was playing God himself. Now this illustration of a tree might seem ridiculous to you if you were to think like, oh, like I, ne- I would never consider myself to be a tree. <laughs> okay, let's think a little less literally, but here's the thing. How many times have we decided that our way is better, better than God's? How many times have we thought that we're bigger than our lives and we can control and understand our circumstances in the future, even five seconds from now? How many times have we thought that we provide what we need with our job or with our investments or with our minds and our smarts and our ability to plan? How many times have we asserted our power over our situation and haven't even consulted the one that has created time, has created our breath in our lungs? Obviously, we are not scaled to like world leader status. I don't know, maybe, maybe someone in here is, I don't know about you though, <laughs> but the sin is the same, pride is the same. You know, I talked about our son earlier. I'd be remiss if I didn't talk about our adorable four-year-old daughter. Um, if you spend any amount of time with her, you will instantly realize that her favorite thing in the whole world is to play dress-up. She loves to play dress-up. In fact, I think she has more dress-up clothes than she has regular clothes. And she just <laughs> she just loves to, to uh play with different personalities. It's really fun. Uh, But the only thing that she loves more than dress up is playing dress up with her friends. And so we'll go to friends' houses and the first thing that she asks her friends is, can we play dress up? No, we have dress up clothes. And even if the friend doesn't want to play, she'll go and play dress up. It's hilarious. (laughs) But this funny thing happens when she's doing her favorite thing and she is in her zone, uh, we know that a storm is coming because she doesn't want to stop. So, you know, we'll give her the classic good parent, like 10 minute warning, like, hey, we're gonna leave soon. Okay. And and then, we, oh, all right, five minutes left, okay. And then we think like, oh, surely she's like packed up, ready to go. And then we come around the corner and she knows. You can see her face like, is it time to go? It's like, yeah. And then it's like just insane waterworks. Oh, what, uh, and she always causes a scene. So then we have a nice drive home. <laughs> And typically the conversation goes like this. One, you've lost the privilege of dress up for a little while because we need to you know, hone back in that uh, perspective. But we usually say something to the tune of, you are the kid and we are the parents. Anybody ever use that one before? <laughs> it doesn't go the, the greatest. I'm not sure why we say it, but I feel like eventually that seed will grow and, and, and she'll just understand. Like, oh yeah, like my parents are in charge of me. Um But I bring this up to say that oftentimes we're the same way. We get get going on on things that we enjoy. And what's funny is God has created those joys within us. He's created gifts within us to use and for us to to have joy and fulfillment using those. But the moment that he wants to change our direction, even just a little bit, our independence becomes this self-reliance. Going back to our definition, this improper excessive self-esteem And all of a sudden, we're at odds with the God that created the very thing that we're enjoying. And we have to remember, we're the kids, and he's the dad. And that's tough. And that brings us to our last universal truth. To overcome pride, we must be overcome and humbled ourselves. And this is not a fun piece of this, but it definitely brings it all together. So we'll, we'll continue on in this passage. Daniel 4, 28. All this happened to Nebuchadnezzar the king. 12 months later, he was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon. The king reflected and said, is this not Babylon the great, which I myself have built as a royal residence by the might of my power and for the glory of my majesty? Uh-oh. <laughs> Can you imagine even saying this? Like, we walk around our house. This is so mighty. You know, this house that I've bought with my own power. It's ridiculous. (laughs) Oh, man, I'd love to see that. (laughs) Verse 31. While the word was in the king's mouth, a voice came from heaven saying, King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is declared. Sovereignty has been removed from you and you will be driven away from mankind and your dwelling place will be with the beasts of the field. You'll be given grass to eat like cattle. And seven periods of time will pass over you until you recognize that the Most High is ruler over the realm of mankind and bestows it on whomever he wishes. Nice little reminder here. Immediately the word concerning Nebuchadnezzar was fulfilled and he was driven away from mankind and began eating grass like cattle. And his body was drenched with the dew of heaven until his hair had grown like eagle's feathers and his nails like bird's claws. Oh my goodness. This man lost it. This power that God has to turn off the switch, that should freak us all out. At the very least, it should remind us that we are not in control. Amen? Amen. He lost his mind. Something that we so hard, work so hard to have under control. He lost his mind. Now, what's interesting, going back to the beginning of this, this uh, passage, is that he had 12 months. <laughs> I'm sure that the, the the dream and the interpretation probably fell heavy at first. Maybe he even like made a promise to God. I'm making this up, but made a promise like, "Hey, all right, like, yes, I will be humble." <sighs> 12 months come, and he's still walking on his roof. I'm the best. <laughs> This just goes to show that our effort alone to rise above our circumstances and attitudes never works. It never works. Many of you know that I love to sail. I learned to sail with my father. I had a great conversation with an older older gentleman at East Lake. And he also learned how to sail with his father, so it's just cool, like, it's just fun to do things that we learn in our childhood and and enjoy. And I have fond memories of sailing with my dad, but one thing that I remember is we'd always go up to Timothy Lake on Mount Hood, beautiful lake. But the thing about this lake is that it's a reservoir, and uh, there's stumps just underneath the, the shoreline, just underneath the water. And uh, I always wanted to drive the boat, like any little boy. I'm sure my son will get to this point, too, where he's just, like, trying to grab the steering wheel. But one day, to my shock, uh, my dad uh, handed me the tiller, which is the the steering wheel. And I was like, all right, this is awesome. And so he said, go ahead, sail. And so, you know, I sat back, and uh, I knew, he had said it before, I knew that the shoreline was a dangerous place to go because of these stumps. But I also noticed that the water was more turbulent, which meant more winds on the shoreline. So I I started heading towards the shore. And I remember my dad just calmly saying, don't go too close to the shore. And I'm getting closer. Don't go too close to the shore. And I'm getting closer. And finally, he physically intervenes and grabs the tiller and steers us away just before we hit a stump. We missed it, but we almost hit it. And this thing was crazy. It probably would have put a hole in the boat. And I thought my time of sailing was over. But what was cool is that God, or excuse me, uh, my dad, (laughs) you're welcome, dad. (laughs) My dad handed the tiller back to me and then I was able to continue sailing. Now, why do I bring this story up? Well, I feel like oftentimes we're stubborn and we think we know best. And if God takes the reins of our life, Um, our life is over. (laughs) That's not the case at all. In fact, I think God intervenes in our lives not to steal our control, but to help us gain it back. God intervenes in our lives not to steal our control, but to help us gain it back. I've been a youth pastor. I had been a youth pastor for uh, almost a decade before I was invited into the the worship role here at the church. And through my time as a youth pastor, I I had the privilege of discipling so many amazing students. And it's fun to see what they've done with their lives. But I remember one student in particular, he was the type of kid that was just at everything. He was highly involved in worship. He was on staff at my camps, Um, just an incredible individual. Uh, But he always had a hang up with theology and faith because he had so many questions. I'm not saying that questions are wrong, but he always put a contingency on those questions being answered for his faith to grow. And it just was always this like challenge for him to move past. Well, like any student, he graduated and he actually went off to college. And one day through certain unfortunate circumstances, he had a mental breakdown, a major mental crash. And it took almost a year of rehabilitation and certain therapies to get back to a level place. And I remember having a really powerful conversation with him uh, at at the end of that and in a time of where he was uh, back to himself. And uh, (laughs) what he said was so powerful because he finally realized what God was doing in his life. And he said, God took my mind so I could give him my heart. And it's the same exact thing we see in this story. We so often quickly blame God for bad circumstances, for taking things from us. And we think, God, we're serving you so well. Why are you, why are you doing this? And to be honest, maybe we don't know why circumstances happen, but I can guarantee you that God loves you enough to intervene in a way that sometimes hurts in order to get you to a place where you need to be in his kingdom. Let's finish this passage up. And it brings us to our last universal truth. In the end, God is sovereign and we will exalt him one way or another. Verse 34 through 37 says this, But at the end of that period, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes toward heaven and my reason returned to me. And I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion And his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, but he does according to his will in the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And no one can ward off his hand or say to him, what have you done? At this time, my reason returned to me and my majesty and splendor were restored to me for the glory of my kingdom And my counselors and my nobles began seeking me out. So I was reestablished in my sovereignty and surpassing greatness was added to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise, exalt, and honor the King of heaven, for all his works are true and his ways just, and he is able to humble those who walk in pride. Wow. What a powerful message from a powerful man. Thousands of years later, we're reading these words, and I don't know about you, but I can say a hefty amen to this process that he's gone through. The point is, God is not vindictive. He's not out to get us. He's out to save us. Even when we don't deserve it, he is gracious. His love is complicated to us, but his love is perfect and his will is above understanding and reproach. We see Nebuchadnezzar respond to his circumstance, his seven-year insanity, and he responds in the proper way. In verse 34, this is what brought him out of it. He says, I raised my eyes toward heaven and my reason returned to me. When we worship and proclaim God's greatness, even in times of struggle, especially in times of struggle, we find favor. If anything, we've found the correct path that we're supposed to be on. And we see Nebuchadnezzar respond in the appropriate way. He worships the most high king, God himself. I'm gonna ask the worship team to come out and we're gonna sing one final song. But before we do, I just wanna reemphasize. When our daughter takes our lead because we know better, when I listened to my dad to steer clear of the destruction that lay on the lake, and when we realize that God uses seasons of humiliation to bring about the right order of His role in our lives, then we will be able to live and worship the true king. So I want to leave you with a question to ponder this week. How will you respond when your pride is revealed? when your pride is revealed. Let's pray. Lord, we are so thankful that you are in control, that you are sovereign, that you are greater than us, than our will, than our ability to plan. Lord, it's a process to be able to yield ourselves to you, and sometimes that process, as we see in this story, can be difficult because our hearts can become hardened. Lord, would you help us not be hardened towards you? But as we talked about at the very beginning of the service this morning, would you search our hearts and convict us of our pride so that we can offer it up to you? Lord, would you take your right place in our hearts as we look to you, as we praise you with the gifts that you've given us, and as we humbly serve and worship you? Be with us, your people. We thank you that you are a gracious God. We pray these things in the powerful name of Jesus, Amen. Would you stand with us as we as we worship?